0: Tonight's talk is about the Ramban. It's a name that we hear a lot about. Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman. He's one of the great medieval commentators in the Torah, one of the great scholars in all of Jewish history, a towering figure, one of the most influential and voluminous scholars and teachers and writers of all time, someone who was vital and integral in the integration or ushering in Kabbalah into the mainstream and one of the absolute shining stars of the medieval Jewish world, whose impact in his scholarship and his writings continues to shape the Jewish world today. After the Rambam died in 1204, so the Rambam was born in 1194, so the ramban it's a little confusing, one's the Rambam, ends with an M, one's the Ramban, ends with an N, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon is the Rambam, Maimonides, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman is the Ramban Nachmanides, and they um, om- they overlap for a little bit. the Ram- The Ramban was ten years old when the Rambam died. He eventually became the leader of all of Spanish Jewry. Essentially, he was probably the, the de facto leader of the Jewish people at the time. Uh, they simply called him Harav in the 13th century. If you say Harav, the Rabbi, there could be a lot of different rabbis, but when they said that term, without telling you which rabbi specifically you're talking about, they referred to the Ramban, Nachmanides, subject of tonight's talk. Uh, he was, of course, uh, the future giants of Spain, the Rashba, Rabbi Shlomo ben Aderes, one of the most magnificent scholars of Jewish history, Rabbi Aaron Alevi the Ra'ah, who is the author, perhaps, of the Chinuch, amongst other books. He was their teacher. And he is a really fascinating individual and personality who lived a very remarkable life. I want to talk about his life tonight. He was born, like we said, a decade before the Ramam died, 1194 in the city of Girona in the region of Catalonia in northeastern Spain, very close to Barcelona. Uh, Important to note, he he came from a rabbinic family uh, and his extended family as well. His first cousin was the great... Rabbeinu Yonah of Gerona. We'll meet him in our story. The Ramban's mother and Rabbeinu Yonah's fathers were brother and sister. And they also became and They also had their children marry each other. And uh, the Ramban also had many other rabbis amongst his family. Now, from a very young age, the Ramban's absolute staggering brilliance was evident. And we see this sometimes Uh, more pronounced than others, that some of these great giants, uh, already from a very young age, are exceptional. They're just, they're off the chart. Uh, So, we know the Ramban, he studied Kabbalah as a teenager, something we don't do today anymore. Uh, He also learned uh, to practice medicine, like the Ramban before him. But most remarkable standout quality of the Ramban was his voluminous writings, Uh, He wrote on a bevy of subjects with astounding depth and breadth. Uh, And he began writing those magisterial works already from a very young age. So uh, we know, we spoke about in the past, the the riff, Rabbi Yitzhak al-Fasi, who was the first of the Spanish Rishonim. He lived several hundred years before the Ramban. Now he was unique because he was the first one to write a book of halacha, based upon the Talmud. So if you open up the Talmud that we have over here, you'll notice at the end of every Talmud, there's the condensed, digest version of the Talmud, written by the Rif, Rabbi Yitzhak al-Fasi. Now there were two books that, two books of the Talmud that he didn't write in, for whatever reason. Maybe he ran out of time or was lost. Either way, they didn't have it. So the Ramban, at the age of 15, decides, you know what, it's been 200 years, no one's, do, no one's done it yet, I'll do it. At the age of 15, he fills in the gaps, and he writes, and we still have it today, look at the back of the books of Nidarim, and Bechoros, you'll see that a riff-style commentary on those books, those tracts of the Talmud, are uh, are present from the Ramban, and indeed, throughout the rest of his writing career, the Ramban made a point, a major focus of his writing is the completion and the defending of the works of the riff, for example, uh, the 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 writing of the riff was very innovative at the time. It was the first time in 500 years the Talmud has been written, and the first time someone was going to take the Talmud and deduce and apply its laws and codify it in a formalized way. And the, he had some detractors. Most notable of them is Rabbeinu Zirachia. Rabbeinu Zirachia is one of the really Interesting characters of the medieval time, but he was also a teenager when he wrote his critique of the riff in very sharp "take no prisoners, no holds barred" uh, way. It's really remarkable. So he would take a various section of of the riff and he would he would argue with it and say, "No, this is not correct," and he would try to fix the mistakes. So the Ramban, in an attempt to defend the uh, the riff. He wrote a book called Milchamas Hashem, The Wars of Hashem. Which wars of Hashem are you talking about? Well, the war of importance of defending the Rif against the aggression and the attack of the Balhamor. He wrote a similar book called The Sefer Hazichus, the book of acquittal, acquitting the rif from the halachic attacks brought upon him by the rived. And of course, we'll discuss more of his writings. In a little bit. The Ramban he founded a famed institution, a yeshiva, in Girona. Eventually he became the rabbi not only of Girona, but of Barcelona, the big city as well. And even though he was he remained a resident of Girona for the bulk of his life, he would commute. He was the rabbi who would commute to Barcelona and be the rabbi there as well. Eventually, when Rabini Yonah, his cousin, died. He became the rabbi of all of Catalonia. Now, the Ramban took center stage in the Jewish world in the 1230s. This is about 25 years after the Rambam died. And we, we spoke about the Rambam, but he was very innovative and resolute in his writings. And he wrote about a lot of very interesting things, some things that evoked tremendous criticism from the generations that came after him. And even more broadly speaking, the time, the 13th century, was marked by the Reconquista, the Christian reconquest of Spain. We know the Muslims were in Spain since 711. And the Christians weren't happy that Muslims were in what they considered to be traditional Christian land. So over that course of those hundred years, alongside the Crusades taking over the world, they were taking the Spanish reconquest of uh, uh, the Christian reconquest of Spain uh, really affected the Jews negatively, but internally as well. And we know this, again, another pattern throughout Jewish history, that we are our greatest enemies. When Jews have internal discord, that is much more dangerous, much more uh, harmful uh, for the continuity and the thriving and vibrancy of Jewish life when Jews fight amongst each other. But there was a huge Battle that raged in the decades following the death of the Rambam regarding his works, and specifically regarding the works of philosophy that the Rambam, or the works that relate to philosophy, we know that the first of the fourteen books of the Yadah the Rambam's magnum opus, the book of Mad, the book of knowledge, where the Rambam codified core ideas of Jewish philosophy. And then he wrote, of course, the famous book, The Guide to the Perplexed, which was essentially a synthesis of Judaism in the prism of Aristotelian Greek philosophy. He he wanted to show that there was internal harmony between what the rationalist people of the world, what they believed in Torah. So he was always trying to explain how Torah made sense in, uh, in, in the... Uh, presiding philosophy of the time. Now, there was a tremendous dispute that tore apart the Jewish world regarding the ra- study of the Rambam, specifically those sections, but essentially it was a proxy for a uh, a broader schism that existed regarding the study of philosophy in general and the study of what we would call today secular studies. Uh, is it appropriate, it's a good question people have asked throughout the ages, is it appropriate for Jews to study anything besides the Torah? We have Torah. Torah is everything. Why do we need to study Greek philosophy or to even uh, even acknowledge that it's that's existence? Well, the Rambam clearly did. The Rambam wrote about it. The Rambam explained Torah in the prism of philosophy of the world. There were others, especially the rabbis in France, they said, no, doing that will cause you to abandon and neglect Torah study, and you may study philosophy to the exclusion of Torah. So they said, no, you shouldn't study not philosophy, and even uh, eventually the, the argument reached a fever pitch, and in the year 1232, many rabbis issued a outright ban against study and even possession of the Guide to the Pledge of the Rambam and the Sefer Hamad the Book of Knowledge. And unfortunately, the way it worked, as the way it continues to work, there were recriminations and acrimony on both sides and the heightening of rhetoric, and people love to be zealous about whatever it is, and zealotry begets further zealotry, So the people that were the Rambam's supporters, they said, okay, you want to make a ban? We'll make a ban against you. And bands bands flew across the table, and it was really unfortunate. Uh, And there were, problematically, some of the giants of the Torah world were on either side of this disagreement. It wasn't like a bunch of rabble-rousers and whippersnappers that you might expect. So the giants of the Torah world were arguing about something very significant and important. The problem was is that uh, there's always the elements, people, guys that love the fight. And they took it to the next level. Uh, And unfortunately, in France, some of the anti-Rambam crowd, they went to the local Christians. And they told the Christians, there's a book that the Jews study. It's called the Rambam. And that says very negative things about Christianity. So they kind of snitched against the Rambam to the Christians. that was too far. And of course, the Christians love nothing more than to add fuel to the flames of an eternal Jewish discord. And they rounded up all the books of the Rambam, brought it to the central square in Paris, and burned it all. And even for the detractors of the Rambam, the people who didn't support study of philosophy they recognized that this was a bridge too far. And at the time, the Rambam got involved. The Rambam was beginning his ascent to the peak of Spanish Jewry, and he wrote a letter to the French rabbis, and he essentially took a middle road. He said, listen, yes, there's some problems with studying the Rambam. Maybe it was written for a different time, it was written for different people, but to attack the Rambam, and certainly to go and malign our great leader, the Rambam, in the eyes of the Christians, that's, of course, unconscionable. And he he essentially kind of made both sides happy. And he also argued that the Spanish Jews who spent more time in Islamic culture at the time, the Golden Age of Spain, where the Muslims were very obsessed with Philosophy, So the Spanish Jews already had kind of one foot in that world. And therefore, for them, it's maybe important. The Rama, Rama wrote it for them, and they should study it. Whereas maybe the French Jews, who did not have that same cultural experience, they should maybe avoid it. And indeed, that became the prevailing norm. Uh, young people were discouraged, on both sides, from studying it. French Jews, again, embraced it as they did. I'm sorry, Spanish Jews embraced it, and French Jews abstained for it, but it toned down the rhetoric. And out of that whole episode, only the Ramban really came out in history vindicated. Indeed, there's a tragic postscript to that story. Once the Christians understood the impact of burnings. In 1244, so only a couple of years after they burnt all the Rambam's works, they seized all the works of the Talmud in France. And they said, well, you guys say the Rambam has problems against Christianity. The Talmud also does. They rounded up all the books of the Talmud. And in the very same location where a decade prior they had burnt the Rambam's books, they burnt 24 wagons of Talmud, at a time when Talmuds all had to be handwritten. So they essentially stripped the libraries of every yeshiva and every house of scholarship in France, effectively ending the Torah greatness of France. And Rabbeinu Yona, the cousin of the Ramban and one of the headliners of the anti rambam campaign, he realized that he made a mistake. And he realized that the people were being punished by having their Talmud taken away from them, specifically because they maligned the works of the Rambam, he publicly confessed, publicly admitted his wrongdoing. He pledged to go to Israel, to prostrate himself upon the grave of the Rambam, to get 10 people and to repent for seven days straight. He he started the trip. Eventually, he didn't actually make it there. He got held up and eventually settled uh, in southern Spain, where he became the great leader um, of the community and taught Torah there for the rest of his life. But he would make a point of always quoting the Rambam, always lauding the Rambam, and always uh, just having the feeling of regret for what he had done. And it is told that the famous work, one of the four pillars of the Musar. Bookshelf, the book written by Rabbi Yona, Shari Tshuva, the Gates of Repentance, was written specifically as a method of atonement for his campaign against the Rambam. But either way, uh, from that point on, the Ramban was a household name in Spain. Now I want to look at some of his writings because it's it's really staggering. And we could kind of go through them very quickly and just say, well, he wrote this and he wrote that. But each one of these books or series of books are monumental and uh, changed the face of Jewish literature forever. So let's just give a little little insight in what he did. So he wrote a commentary on the Talmud. Uh, and now, generally throughout the medieval time, there was a huge influx in commentaries on the Talmud, and. The Ramban's commentaries on the Talmud are, are something from a different world. Every word is measured. He written word very densely. And even his contemporaries noted that to read and understand what he wrote, you have to have keen, precise ear for subtleties. You have to take every word, because he wrote no words that were extra, and kind of boil it down. What does he mean to get the insight of that tremendous commentary? It's actually a whole series on the Talmud. If that was his only literary accomplishment, he would be uh, considered one of the all-time great uh, scholars of Jewish history. But he wrote on a variety, a wide, dizzying variety of Jewish topics. For example, the Rambam wrote a book called the Sefer Mitzvos, the Book of Mitzvot. In it, he delineates what is a mitzvah, what's not. We know the Talmud tells us the 613 mitzvot, 613 categories of mitzvot, but it doesn't actually break down for us which what's a mitzvah and what's a category of another mitzvah. It just says these are such a and just that, that that that's what there is. So the so the Rambam, uh, years prior, he organized, I can't remember, big a list: 248 positive mitzvahs, 365 negative mitzvahs, this is the list of mitzvos, and he begins that with 14 Sharashim, his methodology of how he deduces what's a mitzvah—it's not a mitzvah—and the Ramban writes a response. Beginning with the introduction, he doesn't like the third, the 14 Sharashim of the Rambam, and indeed in today you can get this book, the Book of Mitzvos. In the middle, you have the Rambam, and then you have the Ramban, and the margins attacking him, and then you have the other commentator the other side of the glass defending the Rambam. And then at the end of the whole book, the Rambam finishes his 613, says the Ramban, there's 34 mitzvahs the Rambam forgot. So he swaps out 34 of his 613 and puts in 34 of his own. 17 positive and 17 negative. So for example, uh, some famous mitzvahs where the Rambam and the Ramban disagree to pray. Is it a mitzvah to pray every day? Rambam says yes. Ramban says no. Prayer is a gift from God. It just means God will listen to us when when we call out to him. It's not a mitzvah, it's an opportunity. However, there is a mitzvah when someone is in peril, someone's endangered, someone is trapped in the foxhole, that's a mitzvah for them to pray. If they don't pray, it shows they don't have faith. One example. To live in Israel. is it a mitzvah to live in Israel. We know at the end of Rabban's life, he actually moved to Israel. He made Elia before there were uh, subsidized flights with Nefesh B'Nefesh. Uh, so, the, one of the list of the 34 mitzvahs that the Rambam uh, forgot about, according to the Ramban, is the mitzvah of living in Israel. And he goes with a whole long essay that's very uh, frequently quoted by the settler community, how it's a mitzvah, it's not just an opportunity, it's a mitzvah for us, even in present times, to not relinquish even one square inch of land of Israel. It's all ours and it's a mitzvah for us to inhabit it and settle it. And if you wonder, what is this religious zeal that motivates settlers to live in very dangerous locations. It's this. It's a mitzvah of the Torah, one of the core mitzvahs, says the Ramban, to live in Israel, to settle it, and to not give up Jewish land to other nations. That's uh, from the Ramban. The Ramban also says that it's a mitzvah for us to not forget Sinai. It's a mitzvah for us to not uh, forget for even a moment that God exists. It's a mitzvah for us to remember what happened to Miriam. And he quotes, he brings proofs for this. Verse says, don't forget Sinai, don't forget God. And don't forget what Hashem did to Miriam. Those are all examples A fascinating book of scholarship. The Ramban wrote another book called Torah Sa'adam, The Laws of of Man, uh, and most famous for the last chapter. last chapter, the Ramban, is called Shar Hagmul, The Gate of Reward and Punishment. In it, he discusses reward and punishment, Olam resurrection, all these core topics of Jewish faith and eschatology, he organizes. And he says some surprising things, like, for example, with regards to suffering. What's the purpose? Why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, Theodicy. It's a famous question. And he argues, and there's uh, a lot of evidence that he's correct, that, for example, Rabbi Akiva, who was tortured by the Romans, one of the greatest tzaddikim of all time, that's something we can't possibly understand. There's no way for us to philosophically untangle that problem. The Ramban wrote a book called Sefer Geula regarding Messiah and the final redemption. Uh, famous letters that he wrote, the letter of holiness, Igeris Hakodesh, which the, the the subtitle quotes regarding the bind of husband and wife to merit sons who are scholars and primed to accept upon themselves the yoke of heaven. How parents can uh, affect the spiritual vitality of their children. There's a very famous letter called the Igaris HaRamban, the Letter of the Ramban, which essentially is not just a letter, it's an entire book of Musser, of Jewish ethics, how to become a great person that was somehow magically condensed into a 500-word letter. It's astonishingly short. In fact, it's printed in many editions of a Siddur. I want to read to you the beginning here. He tells, it's written, addressed to his son. So he begins with a verse in Proverbs, Shma Musar vicha, hear my son, the musar, the ethics of your father, and don't forsake the Torah of your mother. And he gives him simple instructions how to become a great person. You should always accustom yourself to speak all your words pleasantly to every person in every situation. If you do that, you'll never be angry. Because anger, he, he warns his son, that is a terrible quality which causes people to sin. And he quotes the Talmud. The Talmud tells us someone who gets angry all different types of gehenom consume him. Well, why do different types of gehenom consume him? Because this says the Ramban is the gateway to sin. When someone is angry that is the cause of sin. Therefore, someone gets angry all different types of Gehenna, all different types of sin he is now prone to commit. And he says, well, what happens when you conquer anger? Then you'll have humility. Again, the famous link between anger and arrogance is found in the Ramban. When someone conquers their anger, well, then automatically they're on the path of humility. And says the Ramban, humility is the greatest of all characteristics and once you have humility, you'll have fear of God. So the rabban is essentially doing what Lutzato does, where he says there's a progression. You start, with, you start with here, and you move up the ladder. Indeed, the ladder of Jacob has always been used as a model of how we can achieve personal greatness. You start over here, you move up. One run after another. You see that, right? right? It's a whole book here, just condensed. Just giving him the, the core ideas of becoming great, and continues from there. Perhaps the Ramban's greatest literary accomplishment was his commentary on the Torah. He wrote this later in life. He would eventually complete it when he got to Israel. Absolutely comprehensive uh, commentary on Torah, with uh, with a lot of color to it. it, it it's not like it, it, he had different many different dimensions uh, found in uh, in it. And ostensibly, it's written. As a super commentary on Rashi, so frequently the rabban begins his commentary. Any any given verse, you open any given any given verse, the rabban is trying to say, "What does the verse mean?" So I'll quote you Rashi and say, "Well, that that doesn't sound right." I quote you the Ibn Ezra, the great commentaries in the Torah before him, and then I'll tell you either it means this or it means that, or he'll he will provide his uh, his insight. Uh, but in, the, in that particular commentary, which again. Covers every book of the Chumash. It's entirely uh, comprehensive commentary. He does talk a lot about Kabbalah. So sometimes you'll read it and I'll say, and it's a matter of truth. And he will start talking about things that don't make any sense to you very cryptically. In fact, Artstore recently released a English translated. Version of the Ramban's commentary on the Torah, but they made a prudent decision not even try their hand to try to translate the Ramban's kabbalistic teachings found in that commentary. So they just say, "Well, the rest of it, we'll just give it to you in Hebrew. Good luck." Uh, They didn't uh, try to translate that into English. He has in it; uh, he's always trying to stick to the simplest meaning, similar to Rashi. Uh, But, for example, one disagreement between him and Rashi that we see again and again is Rashi very frequently will tell you that the verses are written out of order chronologically. So, for example, Rashi understands that the whole sections dealing with the instructions to build a tabernacle were all given after the golden calf. Whereas the Ramban doesn't like that. He says, no, let's not resort to saying that the Torah is non-linear, the Torah is not written in chronological order, unless we absolutely have to. Uh, the Rabban argues with the Rambam. He It's a very colorful commentary. Uh, I want to give you some very famous examples of his teachings in Genesis. The Rabban teaches us that there really were two kinds of creations. One of them is called etz nihilo, something out of nothing. That's only day one. On day one, God created matter and energy. From then on, God creates what's known yesh yesh, something out of something else, which is more like forming, where you take extant matter and energy, and you repurpose it and turn it into something else. Um, the Ramban also, in the beginning of Genesis, talks about how the six days of creation, how they correspond to the 6,000 years of the world. So he makes this tapestry of world history, and he retraces world history in the prism of the insight that the six days really are kind of forward-looking towards the 6,000 years since Adam. Uh, Recently, we read in the beginning of the book of Leviticus, we have uh, the idea of sacrifices. So why do we have sacrifices? So the Ramban, as he does, he quotes the opinions, he has a very long essay, it's not written very, it's not, it's the, he didn't choose brevity on the top of his list of, uh, of goals in this commentary, so he quotes the Rambam, and the Rambam tells us that the reason why we have sacrifices, or one of the Rambam's commentaries on sacrifices, the reason why we have them is because the method of worship that was prevalent in the idol-worshipping world was sacrifices. So when God takes the Jews out of Israel and the Jews embrace monotheism, worship of one God, God decided not to change the means of worship, keep the means of worship, just have a kosher variety. So previously they were giving sacrifices to the pagans, now they'll give sacrifices to God. That's what the Rambam says in the Guide to the Perplexed. Says the Ramban, wait a minute, let's go back all the way to Noah. Noah, when he comes out of the tent, out of, sorry, comes out of the ark, what does he have? There's only eight people around. There's no idolatry in the world. What is the first thing he, one of the first things he does is bring sacrifices. So if sacrifices were just a means of finding a kosher outlet to a non-kosher habit, why would Noah do it? And he brings a whole series of such questions, and he tells us uh, that the reason why there are sacrifices is all about repentance. And he, he, he illustrates it very beautifully. A person brings, when a person sins, they bring a sacrifice. And what does he do? He takes the animal. And he has a live animal. He has to walk it all the way to the temple. He gets to the temple. He has to pray. He places his, both his hands atop the animal. And he has to verbally confess. And he has to see it being burned. And this is a very powerful and evocative experience for someone. The animal that they were walking there is now being killed. And they have to think about that the fact that the that they really, when they sinned, rebelled against God. God says do something, and you say no. God says don't do something, and you say I'm gonna do it anyhow. That's treason. It's mutiny. You deserve to be killed. But God, in His kindness, says, you know what? I'm gonna let you outsource the punishment to the animal. So you see, the animal, an animal's really. Everything that's happened to the animal should be really happening to you. And that is going to hopefully propel a person to repent. And that's how we understand sacrifices broadly. Very powerful idea that Ramban shares with us uh, in Leviticus. It would be remiss if I didn't quote the Ramban at the end of Parshas Bo at the uh, story of the Exodus. My grandfather of blessed memory he would, he would say that every, every Jew needs to know this Ramban by heart because it's so central to our religion. And he's, he starts off here. I'd like to read it as much of it as I could. I will tell you now a reason of many mitzvot. I'll tell you the reason why we do a lot of And He goes through history. He says, from the times of Enosh, Adam's grandson, people started having huge problems Uh, or a huge corruption of faith. Some people would not believe that God exists. Some people believe that he exists, but he abandoned us. Others say that he exists, but he can't control, he doesn't know. All these various different forms of heresy, and they descended upon the world. And that's disastrous, right? Because then there's there's no faith, there's no God in the world, that's what we call, there's a lack of tegona The world's corrupted. But when God loves a nation, and he decides that he wants to have these people represent him in the world, he does miracles for them. And of course, he's referring to the miracles of the Exodus. And what does the miracle do? The miracle, it upends the perspective of the world. You see, the nature does not have its own mandate. It cannot exist. And you see, God obviously is in control. God created. God sustains. God oversees. God knows what's happening. And all those lessons were taught to the Jews at the Exodus. Moreover, there was a prophet. And the prophet was there, and every event that happened that was against the laws of nature, they were all foretold by the prophet. And that creates faith for prophecy, i.e. Torah as well. And thus... At the Exodus, says the Ramban, what the people actually learned, they learn faith. But God did the, does the miracle only once. Those are those 40 years of miracles, of course. But what about today? How do we have faith today? How do we know? Well, the answer is we have to go have this touch point with the Exodus all the time. You say Shema twice a day. What do you say in the Shema? You remember the Exodus. What you're doing is you're having a touch point with the previous experience that brought the faith clear it's like if you go to visit the physician most people don't say to look at his credentials they don't say show me your transcript how do i know you're really a doctor but let's say you have one of those really strange people that does do that they go to the doctor they inspect the credentials they uh, read their transcript they look and examine the uh, stamp on their diploma to make sure it's real Okay, now we could trust that this person's legit. But you know what they do next time? Next time they visit, they don't ask to see the credentials again. Right? They already know. At the Exodus, says the Ramban, what the people learned, they saw God's credentials. They saw faith. It was clear, it was apparent. And therefore, all many, many mitzvos are revisiting that. And thus we have so many mitzvahs upon which we declare Ze Cher Litzias as a remembrance for the Exodus because the objective of all mitzvahs, says the rabban at the end, is to bring us to faith. And he is a very long, very beautiful essay. I'm, I'm, I'm just going over it very quickly. Uh, but he says all mitzvahs, every single mitzvah, the objective of every mitzvah is to bring us to faith. Very powerful Ramban. I would encourage everyone to get their hands on this and just read it. And this is part of the rabban that is translated into English. Now, in 1263, there was the famous disputation of Barcelona. King James of Aragon, Aragon is the region right next to Catalonia, he forced the Ramban to participate in a debate with, an, a, Jew, with a Jewish apostate by the name of Pablo Cristiani. This individual, he claimed that he was able to prove the truth of Christianity and the falsehood of Judaism using only Torah sources. Moreover, not only did he have this bombastic claim, he said, I can even prove in a debate for the greatest Jew of the time, the Ramban. So the Ramban agreed to this debate on one condition, provided that he could speak freely. Normally, uh, throughout history, when Jews were forced to debate, they couldn't respond to any of the claims. They had to be sitting there and just accept. It wasn't a fair argument. It wasn't a real It was a moderated debate in a way that they couldn't speak freely. Their free speech was curtailed. The debate, of course, is not a fair debate. Here, the king told the Ramban, you can say whatever you want, provided you don't categorically denounce Christianity. You just respond to the accusations and arguments of your opponents. Okay, so the Ramban agreed. And of course, over the series of a week, of debates, he absolutely and categorically destroyed his opponent uh, in a debate. Uh, he, he was so successful that at the conclusion of the debate, the king was so impressed that him, he gave him 300 gold coins. And he told him, never in my life have I seen someone who was so wrong argue his case so effectively. Now, in classic loser fashion even though the Ramban absolutely trounced his opponent, the church, they went on to say that they won the debate. So that prompted the Ramban to write a, an account of all the arguments of that debate. So he wrote like the minutes almost. He said, we had this debate and this friar Paul said this and I responded like this. And he quotes it and you actually read it today. The book is the lesson, The Sefer Vikuach, or the, the Disputation of the Ramban, that's actually a book you can still read today. And it's remarkable, just to, to read it, how clearly and convincingly the Ramban absolutely eviscerated him. Uh, and it's, I want to read you a quote here. Friar Paul began, this is a quote in English of the Ramban, saying he would prove from our Talmud that the Messiah concerning to whom the, te- the prophets testify has already come, namely J.C., of course. I replied, this is the rabban talking, before we debate this, I ask, how is it possible? Indeed, uh, this apparently was a claim that this friar Paul had made uh, elsewhere. And says the rabban, I'm surprised. Would he not answer me this one question? Does he mean to say that the sages of the Talmud believed that J.C. was the Messiah? And to believe that he was both simultaneously human and divine, as the Christians believe? However, and he says just a simple question, when did J.C. live? He lived before the temple was destroyed. But the giants of the Talmud, like Rabbi Kiva and his friends, and, and, Reb, and Rabbi Judah the Prince, and Rabbi Nasan, they all lived after the destruction. And of course, Ravashi, Rav Ashi, who lived in the 5th century, he lived many, many years after J.C. and Christianity was well underway. If the sages believed that J.C. was the Messiah and that his faith and religion were true, and if they wrote these things, why did they stay Jewish? This Jewish apostate had been so convinced by the Talmud that J.C. was the real Messiah and Christianity was correct that he abandoned Torah. And he says, well, the Talmud itself proves it. Well, if the Talmud proves it, why did the great rabbis who wrote the Talmud, why did they follow suit? If that's what they wrote in their Talmud. They were Jews and they remained Jews their whole lives. They died as Jews, them and their children, their students, and all of them who heard the teaching. No one of them was able to pick up the genius insights that you have here. And this he's like mocking him. It's, it's, it's dripping with uh, sardonicism, which I think is it's very interesting, because uh, the Rabban was allowed unfettered speech. Why did they not convert and turn to JC as Friar Paul did? He understood from their own words that the faith of the Christians is the truth faith. Of course, heaven forbids, so that's not true. But that's what you believe, and you went and you converted as a result. But they studied Torah, and they taught Torah, and they all of them remained Jews. If these sages believed in J.C. and his faith, how is it that they did not, as Friar Paul, who understands their teaching better than they themselves do? Either way, you can read it. It's not such a long piece, but it's it's remarkable how he just Very, very briefly, very succinctly, just write the questions and answers to prove his point. Uh, The problem was, is that the Christians did not like the publication of this book, and the bishops and the church, uh, they hounded and pursued him relentlessly. And they said, listen, the king told you that you could have freedom of speech for the duration of the debate but not afterwards. And this book, well, that goes against the rules. Eventually, the Rabban had to flee for his life and he traveled to southern Spain uh, where he lived for three years and began writing his commentary on the Chumash. Eventually, he set a, sailed for Israel and he arrived in Akro in northern Israel in 1267. Uh, we know that he went to Jerusalem for Rosh Hashanah. Jerusalem was absolutely ravaged from the Crusades. Uh, He found only two destitute Jews, two brothers who were there. Uh, Of course, he was absolutely horrified by what he found. Uh, There was two Jews living in Jerusalem, and every Shabbos, a minion, a quorum of ten Jews would come to Jerusalem, so there would be a minion every Shabbos. But the first thing Ramban did is he set aside a house in the in Jerusalem itself, in the old city of Jerusalem, uh, to be a synagogue. And indeed, this synagogue, you could still pray in it today. The Ramban synagogue. It's, uh, several hundred feet away from the Kotel Plaza. It is, it was destroyed by the Jordanians in 1948. And one of the first things that the Israelis did when they recaptured Jerusalem in 1967, and 19 years later, was to rebuild the Ramban shul. And in Israel, the Ramban finished his commentary on Torah and he made great strides at re-infusing the Jews of, of Israel with the vibrancy of Torah, which essentially continued uninterrupted uh, ever since. The Ramban died in 1270, the 11th day of Nisan. Uh, quite curiously, no one knows where exactly he's buried. There's some arguments that he's buried here or there or elsewhere. Uh, But everyone agrees uh, that the Ramban was an absolute giant of Torah, whose impact on Jewish life in his day and age was absolutely paramount. Uh, Indeed, his book that he wrote, this little pamphlet, actually gave the Jews a lot of pride and confidence. Look, we, we trounced you when we were allowed to debate you. But even today, 750 years after the Ramban died, He continues to educate us, he continues to inspire legions of Jews with his writing and with his Torah.